Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We have a great show today, but first, take a second to make sure you've subscribed to our show wherever you're listening to podcasts. It's the best way to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. Thank you. Okay, let's get started. There were just some days when I could barely stand. Pain was radiating down my legs to the point where I would have shooting pain up and down both legs. It's sort of like a wall of pain and it is best described, I think, like a migraine in your pelvis um, that sort of radiates up to your shoulders, down through your legs. So it's like my nerves are on fire. I had terrible back pain um, to the point that I said I needed an x-ray. Feeling like somebody's stabbing your back and your front both at the same time. Like it's a really rustic dagger going in and out, in and out between my uterus and my ovaries, stab, stab, stab. Non-stop jabs of what felt like hot white lightning. You know, I guess it's in your uterine area. And shooting pain was like, a lightning bolt through the vaginal canal. Felt like it was tearing apart multiple other organs. I was so sick with the pain that I had to stay in bed all day with a heating pad and just curl up in a fetal position. I'd be like in tears on the floor, felt helpless. My vision would blur. I've definitely thrown up. I, I definitely was in a lot of pain. I mean, it was, you know, emergency room level pain at that point. What you're hearing are women describing the excruciating and sometimes debilitating pain they live with, which is often even worse during their periods. Like many women, they sought help from their doctor, only to be told, No, it's, it's not a big deal. These are period pains, just take some ibuprofen. That's just the way it is, and stop your bitching. It's just your period, this is what everyone goes through. It is what it is, and suck it up. Stop complaining. The pain is all in your head. It can't be that bad. It's normal. But is this type of pain normal? I didn't know what normal was. I was just told, this is your period. And later I found out that that was not normal. I knew that it wasn't normal to be vomiting, to not be able to see, you know, when you have period pain. Here I am silently suffering because basically I was told, like, this is your period. And I was like, this can't be the reality of bleeding. This is not normal. I certainly do know that women are told it is normal by a lot of people, you know, many, many women that I see in my professional environment, which is students at MIT, are made to feel that it's normal, that the level of pain that they have, they are overreacting. And she should know. She's Dr. Linda Griffith, a professor of biological engineering and director of the MIT Center for Gynepathology Research at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She and her colleagues aren't just researching gynecological problems. We want to illuminate the mechanisms behind common morbid gynecology diseases and disorders and hopefully point directions to better therapies and more accessible therapies for the hundreds of millions of women suffering from these pathologies. Dr. Griffith counts herself as one of those hundreds of millions of women. She too experienced years of extreme pain and other symptoms due to endometriosis, 
a disease which affects an estimated 11% of women between the ages of 15 and 44. When I started my period, when I was 12, it was immediately extremely painful. And when I was younger, I would often faint the first couple of days of my period, frequently faint and throw up. And the cramps were really intense because, you know, there was, this was before Aleve and all of these COX-2 inhibitors that are now so effective for just plain dysmenorrhea. Dysmenorrhea is the term used to describe the pain associated with painful periods. There are several possible causes. However, the most common cause is endometriosis. And this is a condition that you are intimately familiar with. And it's also something many women don't even realize they are suffering from. They may be anemic and struggling to get through their daily activities. And yet they're sort of told that this is normal. Your period is normal. It's anything but normal. How would you describe endometriosis to a person who has never heard of the condition? It's a disease characterized by this tissue growing where it shouldn't be causing inflammation. We don't really know how exactly the tissue gets there. There are many hypotheses. We do know that when a woman has her period, some of the menses goes out of the fallopian tubes into the peritoneal cavity. Thus, it may land on the organs and tissues lining. You know, the peritoneal cavity is, is that place where the abdominal organs are. So maybe the tissue is just landing there and growing. And so it's not just on the wall of the abdominal cavity. It can land on the bladder, on the ovary, on the intestines. And so that tissue, then blood vessels grow into it. And it's like a little bit of the endometrium. It responds to hormones. It can bleed. There's nowhere for it to go. So you get an inflammation. You know, think about when you have an injury, like if, even if you have a very bad you know, paper cut, it hurts, right? It's, it's inflamed, it's throbbing. And so now you've got these little injuries all over the inside of your abdomen. And when there's inflammation, you get pain. What were some of the explanations you heard from various doctors during that time about before you had your diagnosis about what was causing your symptoms? Mostly just nothing, uh, just sympathy uh, that some women go through this. Um, there was some, you know, suggestion that my lifestyle was not good. Uh, also that maybe psychologically I was rejecting being female. Um, rejecting being female. Wow. Well, yeah, I was in chemical engineering. I rode a motorcycle. I went through a phase where I shaved my head, um, taught karate, all that kind of stuff. So surely I must be rejected. It's, it can't be just like, I feel like doing these things. I've read in other interviews you've done that you mentioned that it was, you felt like you were being gaslighted by your doctors. Do you think that still happens to women today? Absolutely. And, and across the board for everything. But I think women can just appear more um, energetic and healthy than they actually are. And so doctors may be misreading symptoms because the patient seems fine. I was really minimized um, whenever I brought it up. The healthcare system kind of failed me in a way. And I also even had some doctors laugh at me. I was basically silenced. I was told not to complain, not to be emotional, not to show any signs of weakness. I think a prevailing feeling among our community is helplessness, feeling like 
what can I do? Where can I go? Who will believe me? Who will help me? You know, these patients can be in pain that cripples them. They can't get out of bed. There's also in many patients vomiting, fainting, um, but the, the crippling, crippling pain that accompanies these lesions that can be bleeding and causing more immune cells to come in and excite, you know, the nerves. So it's, it's a disease that this tissue causes huge systemic effects so that you get so sick, you can't go to school and you can't go to work. Sometimes it's accompanied by hugely excessive bleeding. The mm -hmm. fact that um, the tissues growing on the intestines often causes terrible, terrible gastrointestinal problems. In fact, young patients often have gastrointestinal problems as a first presentation or a very serious constipation, diarrhea, bleeding because the tissues even tear from the constipation. And so these effects can be as debilitating as you know some of the pain and together they make it an intolerable situation for right. the patient. I felt that I was responsible in some way for having this pain or that something was wrong with me that I couldn't handle it. I don't know anyone with endometriosis who hasn't gone to the doctor and then sat outside the office in the car crying because you just feel so alone and helpless. Sometimes it's not just the patients who feel helpless. I can't say enough about the surgeons that I work with in gynecology because um, they care about their patients in a deep and profound way. They want life to be better for their patients. They agonize over the primitive tools they have to care for their patients. Most of them are very sympathetic to the patient's complaints, but realize that when they don't have a way to diagnose and treat something the patient is complaining about, the medical profession in general will often say that the problem doesn't exist. But is sympathy enough? Or could empathy be one of the missing pieces of this puzzle? Exactly. One can speculate, and it's pure speculation, that having more women like me who have intimately experienced these situations and who have the tremendous good fortune to be in a position to shed some light scientifically on these problems and hopefully help the whole community make progress, you know, that having more women's voices in the room really will illuminate and help the women, you know, help, help progress in these diseases. And certainly in gynecology, you see there's been this amazing flip in the gender breakdown among the surgeons, the generation that I'm in. I mean, I'm not a surgeon, but, but the, the people my age are all, almost all men. So you're a biological engineer. Could you kind of briefly sum up uh, what that field is all about for folks who are not necessarily familiar with it? So I began my academic career in regenerative medicine, trying to build technologies that would allow us to regenerate liver, bone, and other organs and tissues. Biological engineering is a new discipline of engineering that stands aside the more traditional, like mechanical, electrical, and so on, but bringing the science of biology into the service of society as engineers tend to do. My lab focuses on building models of humans that can facilitate, accelerate, and do things that animal models can't possibly do in understanding complex diseases like endometriosis, and especially endometriosis.
when you're talking about the the kinds of diseases that you are studying with these models, what are the specific types of diseases or conditions or problems that you are looking at? For sure, endometriosis and adenomyosis are the two major diseases that I clinically get involved with because I got started on all of this um, partly due to the efforts of a surgeon, Keith Isaacson at Newton Wellesley, who expressed tremendous exasperation at how primitive the methods were for treating endometriosis patients. But for women with endometriosis, adequate medical care isn't the only serious concern. This is a disease that can impact all areas of life. I lived my entire life for so many years around just rescheduling every single thing that mattered and having, you know, this shame. And unfortunately, I married, you know, this person, um, you know, because I wasn't being diagnosed and, and other things, he never believed I was sick. And he, he got very angry, actually, that I would get so sick during my period, I would curl up on the sofa after coming home from lab, and he would grab me and shake me by the shoulders and say, get a grip on yourself. You're acting like such a baby and you need to get up and you need, you know, and and he really felt that I was malingering and he, you know, the worse I got, the more angry he got. So the marriage ended in large part because he never accepted I actually had a disease. Wow. What is it exactly that contributes to that extreme pain in endometriosis? So what causes the pain can be different. It can arise from stimulation of the nerves themselves. It can arise from things that happen in the spinal cord, and it can arise from changes that happen in the brain to change the way that signals governing pain are processed in the brain. But at part of it, we know is there's inflammation. And so this is part of the pain in endometriosis, certainly that you've got inflammation, this trapped endometrial tissue that normally when you have your period, it goes out of the body. It's, it doesn't have anywhere to go. So it's sitting there and the immune system's trying to get rid of it, but it shouldn't be there. So there's the immune system screaming out, something's wrong here. And and this can cause pain. Mm -hmm. Um, Other, other pain can come, uh, the pain that is dysmenorrhea can come from the cramping actually of, you know, the muscles in a spasm. Your uterus can go into a spasm. And if you've ever had a muscle spasm, you know, it can be incredibly painful. So you can get muscles in the pelvic area can also develop spasms and that can contribute to pain. You know, if you want to explain to a man what the pain is like, ask him to tape his testicle to the inside of his leg, sit there. So it's comfortable. He doesn't really feel it. Then get up and run around the block. Mm. Okay. And it's going to be pulled on in ways that are going to make him throw up. How long did it take for you to actually get a diagnosis of endometriosis? So I was 28 and I was diagnosed accidentally after going to the doctor every month for six months, insisting that this wasn't normal. And it can be very hard to remember pain. You have to have specific graphic examples like that. And I think this is a lot of women get talked down from, you know, reliving the intensity of the pain. If they go when they're not in the worst of it, they can be talked down 
from what what really they were experiencing. And it, and I I went every month and said, no, here's what happened. I'm not I'm not I'm not accepting that this is something I'm living with. What advice would you have for other women who are either suffering in silence with this condition or they get responses from their doctors along the lines of, well, this is normal or, uh, you know, there's nothing really wrong with you? So first of all, always document your symptoms and include anything that may be influencing your symptoms, because even though I said lifestyle, you know, can't cure it, that we know that you know, having healthy diet, exercise, sleep, all of these things can influence the severity of symptoms. So do the best that you can to document your daily habits, when your symptoms happen, the severity and get graphic examples of how debilitating your symptoms are, because you can at certain times, you know, I I certainly know this myself, you are more emotional than others. And it can be difficult to string together the facts that will help a clinician understand what your situation is. So document, document, document factually, dispassionately, and thoroughly, including things that you may be doing. You know, everybody has a lapse where you didn't drink as much water as you should, or you went out and had, you know, three drinks one night when you never do that. You know, put that down because that is information that's important. So, so honest communication and really good factual communication about your symptoms and what may or may not trigger them is very important um, because that's how you can you can build a dialogue with a clinician that's transparent and fact-based because then if they start to gaslight you, you can confront them as I did. And then um, recognize that your self-diagnosis or interpretation may not be complete. You know, so the doctor may actually know more than you. So there's some doctors that will gaslight you and want to dismiss you, but some may be very interested in doing differential diagnosis because the symptoms of endometriosis overlap with lots of other things. And it is important to have any kind of abdominal pain and pelvic pain adequately, thoroughly investigated for differential diagnosis of what's going on. For some women with endometriosis, this process, coupled with the pain, can be overwhelming. It's incredibly helpful to have someone go with you when you see a physician who can be your advocate and just your extra eyes and ears. If you're as sick as I was many of the times I went to the doctor, it's very hard to concentrate. It really is. You're emotional. You're, um, at least I was. And if you're living through that kind of pain, I mean, that's (laughs) that's a lot to deal with. Your brain can be a fog. It can be, you can just really have your brain shut down. And so having one or even two people who are very clear-eyed, who are informed, who know how to ask questions, who know your history, you know, you know, if you can't have your mom or dad or somebody go with you, have a friend who really, or acquaintance who understands what your situation is, who's not going to take no. And my second husband, Doug, um, was tremendous in supporting me and going to my appointments with me when I would backpedal or diminish my symptoms. So I think having an advocate, if you're financially strained, you probably, you know, hopefully you have someone in your life even if you meet that person online and ask them, and there are a lot of women who would be willing to help someone in yours. I've, I've gone to appointments with, with students mm-hmm. um, who really needed an advocate for themselves. Wow. Support makes all the difference for sure. It really does. Having someone who 
believes you and, and pays attention to your symptoms, who knows your symptoms and can help you um, understand them is, is, is really critical. Do you have a sense of what it was that gave you that aha moment that this is something indeed that you should be spending your career focusing on? It was many things together that all at once collided in one event. And, and part of it was my own experience, which I had buried because you definitely, I didn't want to talk about my period. You know, I had a lot, a lot of difficulty dealing with endometriosis because there's all the cancellations of talks because I had to have emergency surgery and this and that. So a student asked me where I saw my lab in three to five years. And I immediately blurted out, I going to be studying endometriosis. Wow. <laughs> right there on stage. I, I, okay. Yeah. And I didn't know where that came from. It just blurted out. And, and so then I, uh, you know, and Dr. Isaacson also, who was my surgeon had been really trying to get me to think about working on it. And then, you know, that was it. And so from then on, it was like, let's do this. And it would be almost criminal for me not to use that wonderful blessing I have to have people really smart, get engaged with these problems and help solve them. But Dr. Griffith admits it's not an easy undertaking. There has been a huge, huge underfunding of gynecology. The way that we move the needle is we need to understand these diseases more. Congress has to appropriate the money to NIH to study the diseases. You can write your congressperson, write your senator, write your congress representative and say, this is an urgent, urgent need to correct this imbalance in funding for these serious, prevalent, morbid diseases in women. It's a scandal for this country that we have not invested more in the basic understanding of the uterus, much less the pathologies of the uterus. And, and Congress should do something about this. And she has some opinions on how to make this happen. I think coordination would be amazing. And I hope it happens. Who's going to step up and do the coordination? Where does that come from? And one might look to breast cancer as an example, because what really galvanized funding and coordination was when the Republican women in Congress stood up and said, damn it, we're doing something about this. And they pushed some things through that increased you know, some coordination among the different groups. There's a couple of different fibroid patient groups. There's a couple of different endometriosis patient groups. But I, I think coordination would be amazing. The question is, with everyone like me completely flat out, how do we, how do we make that happen? You know, I, I just kind of wish someone really wealthy who has free time would fund a way to coordinate all of this because I don't have the kind of money, you know, I'm an MIT professor and people think MIT professors start all these companies and have billions of dollars. And some of them do, but not me because I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I'm spending whatever extra money. I, I actually spend some of my own personal income on my endometriosis research because mm. it's so hard to get. It, it, it's really got to be some pressure that the public has on Congress because Congress appropriates the funding to NIH and NIH then responds to what Congress appropriates to them. So if you want to help, um, don't write me to send me your uterus, write <laughs> Congress and your Senator and explain why it's so important to write the imbalance that has existed for decades and decades in funding of gynecology. Something everyone just, can do, whether or not they have endometriosis. Yeah, everybody, everybody, everybody can do this. I love that. I completely agree. Um, I would love to be able to advocate more um, on a higher level to 
try to, you know, find some answers. I've never thought about writing my congressperson before, but I probably should. I might even write a letter now. A hundred percent we need to write Congress and the senators and tell them, like, this is where funding needs to go. And now that that has been said, I do want to write to them. We all need to be advocating more for ourselves, um, whether you have endometriosis or not, it's affecting you. Your loved one's life would be better. Your life would be better. Uh, I don't think that there's anyone probably who wouldn't be touched by this in some way. You guys can't see me right now, but I'm kind of grinning from ear to ear. That makes me so happy to hear. Um, I really love hearing doctors talk like that. I love hearing anybody talk like that because that's kind of what endometriosis boils down to is advocacy. I actually feel a little lighter right now because I have never talked about endometriosis with anybody to this degree. I feel like I've contributed to something that's important and that people should know about. And our sincere thank you to all the women living with endometriosis who shared their experiences with us today. I'm Linda Griffith. My name is Deza O. Gigi Marino. Brittany Ferry. Carrie Wigginton. My name is Danielle Payton. And I'm Carrie Gann. Thank you for listening to Health Now from WebMD. Next week, our podcast will sound a little different. We'll be changing our name to Health Discovered. And I can't wait for you to hear what we have in store. Take care. 